And there are quite a few that are saddling up their horses. Uh, we got some uh, that will be leaving this next month or so on various trips. We've got, um, of course, you heard from Jeffrey and Noel, who will be living for two years in Kenya um, and work there. We'll be praying for them. And then we have, um, of course, the folks from Belarus will be headed back. It's been a pleasure to have them with us and having those host families that are involved in a mission trip uh, in reverse and them coming here. Uh, and then we've got... Um, Chad and Amanda Hinton, they are a young couple in our church. They'll be leaving in August going to uh, Rwanda working with medical missions. They are um, using their skills in the medical field and working the ministry over there. Uh, and then we have uh, another, you know, two young men. Uh, we've got Alan Samant and also uh, Trey Fussell. They'll be leaving to go to East Asia to visit with Wayne and Jennifer uh, next month as well and encourage them. And then uh, Billy Harrison and Matthew Smith and myself will be going to Nepal in September. I'll be preaching at a church planners conference there, uh, several hundred church planners in Nepal. And then uh, Billy will be working on medical treatment for the pastors and their families that are there. And then Matthew and I will be going on to East Asia to visit with Jeremy and Tricia as well as Wayne and Jennifer. And so there is a lot of... Uh, that aspect of going on in our church, uh, we just praise the Lord for folks that have a heart to do that um, and willing to, to do that. But also we are looking at missions here, literally along Hodge Road. Um, we got a report back from a demographic study and found that with the one mile radius of this location along Hodge Road is 4,000, over 4,000 people uh, within one mile. And of our church, uh, you know, if we were even reaching 10 percent, we would have 400 and some here uh, today. Uh, and that's not to mention the growth that will happen as developments are built uh, and are being uh, finished along this road. And so we're looking at the next two years, how we can uh, reach our neighborhood, neighborhood by neighborhood, our community, neighborhood by neighborhood, starting with the Green Pine Neighborhood, and this is something that we're going to take the month of August, especially in prayer for, um, as we as we look at this and and ask ourselves, do we see ourselves on a mission trip here? Do we want to be on a mission trip in your neighborhood? And this is a question we've got to examine in prayer, as well as for the Lord to do a working in our heart. So two Sundays from now, uh, we'll have a Sunday evening service where we especially are in prayer about us. And being obedient to God, uh, we are probably also looking at having communion as part of that, um, as well as the Lord working through us uh, in the neighborhoods around us. Now, in this idea of missions, I, I think about David Livingston. He is someone I've been reading about recently. Uh, he is uh, a missionary slash explorer that was especially in East Africa. He started off working in missions, but as time went on, he kind of went more down the explore route. And, and the last charge of his life, and, and what, in fact, he gave his life toward, was trying to find the source of the Nile. And so he would, had his theories in exploring along the, uh, around Lake Victoria and the lakes therein, uh, trying to discover where the Nile was at. And in fact, spent years on end in Africa and would trade, traded his relationships with his wife as well as his children, uh, 
for the exploration in Africa. In fact, it was about the last eight years of his life that he was spent uh, on expedition. And the question soon came in England. This is around the 1860s, 1870s. Where is Dr. Livingston? And that was kind of the, the headlines of the newspapers of the day. And that was where the search was. And eventually it came over to America. That same uh, curiosity. Where is Dr. Livingston in this world? And so the New York Herald commissioned Henry Stanley to go and to find this one. Whether he was dead or alive. To do not come back until there's evidence of his person. And so it was over a period of several months. Many months. Uh, Henry Stanley eventually did find Dr. Livingston. But he did not come back with Dr. Uh, with Henry Stanley as Henry Stanley had in mind. He said, I want you to come back with me. I'm rescuing you. And Dr. Livingston was in essence saying, well, I thank you for the supplies, but I'm not going back. I'm continuing on. And he was left by Henry Stanley eventually in his expedition. It wasn't much longer after that that he himself did die. Now, the porters, those who are alongside of him, who've been journeying with Dr. Livingston, had to make a choice. They decided to uh, embalm the body of Dr. Livingston as save for his internal organs, his, his heart primarily. And there they put his heart in a box. And they buried this box uh, in the ground right by a tree in Africa. The thought was, this is where he wanted to be. Let's bury his heart here. We'll send the body back. And that's exactly what they did. I wonder if someone was examining our life and they had a choice of the matter and they said, let's take Jared or let's take you, let's take your uh, your body. Where would they bury your heart based on what they've learned about you? If that was a choice, bury my heart and where it lies, that which I give my life for. Where would your heart be? I think we have an example of that as we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49 and Genesis 50. This is the last chapter. We're here, guys. We're here. I understand I did not capture and cover the text well in the second service. I was greatly unfair. I I did in the first service. I got to cover most of the sons and their uh, prophecies and what happened to them. And I see no way I can cover that and what I need to cover today. And so uh, for those of you who wish to know what some of those, uh, some of the things I found uh, and the fulfillments of prophecies and the other sons, uh, you can uh, email me and I will return the notes to you that have uh, some indication of what had happened to those tribes and how it may have fulfilled the prophecies of Jacob. Uh, you can just email me at jscott at greenpines.org, or you can go to the website and you can find that information there, the Green Pines website. Uh, so that's going to be the only way I can cover that. And so we're going to go to Genesis 49, and we're going to look primarily at, at verse 29, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. We're going to find two individuals, uh, Jacob and Joseph. And interesting what is said about these two individuals in the New Testament. Of all the things that happened to Jacob and Joseph, the instances of faith and obedience, the uh, trials and adversities they went through, and the book of Hebrews, when it starts talking about the hall of faith and recounts the lives of Jacob 
and Joseph. It doesn't talk about those things. It talks about what happens here. In Genesis 49 and 50, it talks about how they die. It talks about that Jacob giving blessings to his sons, worshipped God, and then uh, leaning on the staff, and then after that, dying in faith. It talks about Joseph, how in his death, he made the wish to have his body embalmed and brought back to the land of Canaan in faith. Isn't it interesting? When Hebrews looks back on their life, it's not all of their life, but it's how they died. We make a big show of how we're born We make a big show of someone being converted to Christ and being baptized. But perhaps maybe what we're to look at is how you die. Maybe that's the real indication of your life. How do you die? And so that's what Hebrews brings out in Hebrews chapter 11. And so let's look at this because I think it teaches us something very important here. And so let's uh, stand as we read this together. We've been reading all of Genesis. Let's stop not stop now. Let's go ahead and read all of it here. And Genesis chapter 49, starting with verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abram bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his fathers, the physicians, and embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, that is, how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me bury. Please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and the herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that the father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. 
Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brother also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You may be seated. It seems to be that there is inordinate attention to two deaths. And specifically, their burials. I believe that Moses was very intentional when he ended the book of Genesis with two deaths. You see, it is in the process of the burial that a lesson is being given. The main theme is, don't bury me in Egypt. That's not the land God promised me. Let me die believing in the promises of God. God told Abraham. He told my father Isaac. He told Jacob. There will be a land that he himself will give It'll be the nation will dwell here. Let my body be there. So they die. They're buried believing in the promises of God. And the message is my heart set there. Now we know the burial practice of Egypt. I mean, if you study history, you, you know, the great pyramids, they did it in style. You know, they had the gold, they had the silver, they had the mourning period as the Bible gives us the, the 40 days as is their practice. Uh, I mean, they seem to have a whole art behind burial. And the pyramids still exist today. Now, what Joseph and Jacob are saying, though they are men of honor in Egypt, they're saying this. I would rather be in a cave in the land that God promises than to be in a pyramid with spices and all the honors of Egypt. And a land that God did not promise. They are trading the riches of the land for the promises of God. Now, Jesus said it a little bit differently. All right. Let me just keep your finger here because we're going to be in Genesis primarily. But I want to take you to the book of Matthew because he has another way of saying this. And the book of Matthew, primarily chapter six, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus uh, gives us important instructions in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and still. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and still. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he has this other saying. He says, the eye is the lamp of the, the, eye is the, lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what is he saying? He says, this little thing about your eye and the lamp, that which you're focused on, okay? If that which you're focused on is the things of this earth, then he says you have a bad lamp. 
And if your lamp is bad, the whole of your soul is bad. He says, poor thought to focus on the things of this earth. He says, instead, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Jesus is teaching us that if someone wants to bury our heart anywhere, we won't be able to do it because it's invested in heaven with the things of God. Now, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 states it this way. It says, set your affections on things above, not on things below. And it goes on and explains what all the things of the below are. The sexual immorality and the lust therein and, and all these things that will go away. He says, be the type of person that what really gets you excited are the things of God. Now, let me ask you, how do you know what your heart's set on? You guys know. Your children know what you are excited about. It is that which gives you hope. It is that which can get you angry. It is that which will make you cry. What makes you cry? What makes you angry? What makes you excited? It's that which will predominate, predominate your thinking. It is the why of what you do. Why do you want your work to go a certain way? Why do you want your family to go a certain way? Why do you want the economy to go a certain way? There is, every single one of you, a treasure that you have. And what I just want to argue for this morning, and I believe what the example of Joseph and Jacob argues for, is this. Make what really gets you going and pumping be the things of God. So that being said, what does, it, what does it mean to be heavily minded? You've heard the saying that you're so of heavily minded that you're of no earthly good. I mean, you're singing songs all day. I mean, what good are you? I would just present to you that that is not the case. Here you have two individuals that have a heavily mind, that have the things on the, on the promises of God, their minds on the things of God, but notice how they live life. What we notice in verse 28 through 32, it is about the end time of Jacob, his death. He says, I, bury me in that cave that Abraham bought. You know, he bought it, he possessed it because it was the land that God gave him. He says, don't, Abraham said, don't bury me where I came from, bury me right here. This is going to be our roots. This is going to be our heritage where God says our heritage will be. It is a field, it is a cave. And so, that being said, the final agenda is done. There's nothing left for Jacob to do but die. And that's what he does. What? That's a great way to go. That there's nothing else for you to do but die. Everything else in life has been taken care of. And there, there's the phrase, he says he, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That was kind of, it's kind of an idiom. Uh, it has two meanings. One, in that day and time, they would collect the, the body and remains of the individual. And then when all is decayed and the, bat, the bones are there, they would gather the bones and literally put it with the bones of their forefathers. And, you know, we have the things called the ossuaries that uh, have gained popularity because of archaeological finds. Uh, this is what they would do in the days of Jesus. They would gather the bones. And, and so literally in the caves, the bones would be with that of Jacob, uh, with Isaac, with Abraham. They would be gathered together in those of their wives. And so there was a literal sense to this, but there's also uh, an uh, afterworld sense to this, that uh, they were to be gathered not just with the bones, but with the persons of their fathers. In fact, Jesus elaborated on this in Matthew 22. There was a debate as to whether or not there's really a resurrection. Is there something that happens after death? 
That's a worthy debate to have. And they were having it with Jesus. I could think of no one better to have it with. The one who's actually been there and come back and told us about it. And so he starts talking to him. He says, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, notice the tense. He says, not past tense, but present tense. What Jesus was saying is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of living. And so Jesus, in effect, says that in his time, while he walked on this earth, Jacob's still there. Isaac's still there. And let me tell you, those who have gone before you, who die in the faith, trusting in Christ, they are still alive according to Jesus. All right? Not my word, but according to Matthew 2, according to Jesus, they are still alive. They're gathered together with his people. Just as the Bible says, and Jacob did so as well. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, let me just give you a little teaching of what happens when you die. Some would say, well, you know, your spirit just ceases to exist. It's in a state of slumber and awaken at God's choosing. The problem with that is that's not what Jacob thought. That's not what Jesus thought. And how do you explain Moses and Abraham, who had been long dead, talking with Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration? I thought they were supposed to be asleep. You know, what I'm saying is that 2 Corinthians 5, 8 teaches, and what the Old Testament teaches as well, is that there is an ongoing awareness and alive in spirit with God himself. Know that, believe it, and trust in it. It is the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 22, as well as right here. Now, some would say, well, you know, you got, you're always thinking about heaven, you're thinking about God. That makes you so you are protected against uh, the hurts of this world. That's, could be fur- there could be nothing further from the truth. When you have a heart toward God and the things of God, it develops a love, a sensitivity that is unusual. In fact, I would argue that if you have a heart toward this world, it would make you abuse the ones that are here because you'll treat them as God and find your hope and joy in them as opposed to God. And you'll find that people will get in the way of the things you want in this world. Notice how Joseph reacts in in chapter 50. Jacob dies. What does he do? He fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. He kissed the dead body of Jacob. All right. There is a broken heart. He is about 59 at this time when his father dies. It just brings to mind that though you have a heart toward heaven, it does not make you exempt from the pains of this earth. When Jesus himself wept, it lets us know that we will also weep. And notice verse 2, he commands the servants to embalm the father. Now, it was not Jewish tradition, Hebrew tradition to do uh, embalming. Um, This is a uniquely Egyptian thing in this time and day. As you know, do it well. Their work still endures. Uh, And so normally it was the priest, but he caused the physicians to do this and perhaps maybe to separate Jacob from the religions of Egypt. And so they do the process. Forty days are required. The Egyptians weep for him seventy days, as is the the custom of the Egyptians. And we have this great um, passage of of Joseph being respectful to Pharaoh. He's doing his job, and he's he's being 
uh, faithful to the call that he's that he's doing. Listen, when you have a heart toward heaven, it does not mean that you will shirk the duties of of this world. We find that Joseph is in the exact opposite. He said, this job has been given to me by God and it will be held accountable by God and I will see the rewards of what I do on this earth in heaven. Therefore, I will do it well. And notice the words of respect and faithfulness and saying, I will come back. Verse 5, I will return. Pharaoh says, go up and bury your father. And so he goes. And then we get in this last part of this passage of of, uh, chapter 50, uh, that there's a a great process, a procession going to Canaan. In fact, it is so notable. You see in verse 10 and 11, they come across this threshing floor. Don't think about a barn. It's not a barn. This is out in the field. It's a hard piece of ground. It's uh, elevated. Where the wind can carry the shaft from the wheat. And they come across there and they stop. And the Canaanites are Canaanites around them think, this has just been a great morning of Egypt. Why, why all this attention of the honor here? I think it just lets us know what Jacob is trading. What Joseph is trading. These men are of honor. And they're trading that honor to be buried in a cave. Buried in a cave. But notice verse 15. When you have a heavy mind, not only does it help you deal with the losses of others and, and, and helping you be sensitive, not only does it help you be a good worker because you know that these things are being accountable by God, but it also helps you deal with injustice. Notice the, the brothers, when, when the father dies, they get afraid. Now, when the brothers mistreated Joseph, he was 17. He's 59 now. 42 years has passed. How long will a guilty conscience last? Well, at least 42 years. And now they're afraid. Because daddy's gone. And they think that the only thing that's keeping Joseph back from vengeance is daddy. Why would they think that? Because that's what they would do. Remember all before they wanted to kill Joseph, but they did not, would not, because daddy was there. But the moment they got away from daddy is when they took their move. And think, well, that's how we are. That's how Joseph will be. But you see, it wasn't the earthly ties that was dictating Joseph. It was a heavenly tie that was dictating Joseph. You see this in, in how he reveals this message. Um, they come up, the brothers are pleading. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers. And you know, one thing that's refreshing about verse 17 is they call it what it is. <laughs> this is a transgression. This is a sin. This is evil. You know, nowadays you, you just don't want to call it sin. It's just an a unfortunate incident that many people will confess to. But it's refreshing to hear someone say what we did was evil. And so they fall down before in verse 18. Verse 19, Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I think it's fascinating. The book of Genesis starts with a couple, Adam and Eve in paradise, in the, in the garden that God created. And they mess up because they want to be in the place of God. Satan says, if you just eat this, you can be like God. And here the book of Genesis ends with one man saying, I am not in the place of God. If you don't get anything from the last year and a half of me preaching, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> but I hope that you get this. 
I am not in the place of God. That is the lesson that seems to be evident right here in these two bookends. And so Joseph says, I am not God. God is going to do the vengeance. I am not the one. And so he says, verse 20, yeah, you meant evil against me. I'm not excusing what you do. And forgiveness is not excusing. It is calling it what it is, but forgiving for what it is. How do you do that? Because you believe in God and you believe in a God that will hold you in account as well as others in account. You do not have to lash out in vengeance. Even though someone takes your eye, our tendency is to take two eyes for the one eye they took from us. We don't do that because we believe that God will uh, prevail in justice and how he chooses. And so he says, uh, verse 20, God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you have ever been injured by anyone, I counsel you to look at verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. Memorize it. Study it. Think about it. And apply it to your life. It will save you hundreds of dollars in therapy. <laughs> Alright? Study this. And believe it to be true. Now, what is he saying? Yeah, you did harm to me but i believe in a god he could have intervened in any moment in time he could have rescued me from your hands he could have protected me from the false accusations of rape he could have freed me from jail he could have done these things he did not uh he allowed your evil intentions to prevail in my life for a time but in the same god that joseph believes in that that is so powerful that he could stop and start at any moment in time if god so choose so that ultimately he is responsible if he is that type of powerful then is it also true that god is so powerful that he is also transcendent enough to be working in the midst of these to have a purpose of which he chooses i've shared uh before that somehow in middle school i ended up in weaving class I'm not sure how I ended up in weaving class. I think everything was gone uh, of electives. And I, here I was with like three other guys and 20-some girls, and we're weaving, all right? And so I, I can't say I learned much from that. If nothing else, I got this one great illustration, <laughs> all right? And that's as you're weaving, if you're looking at one side of it, it looks very ugly. I mean, it's just like loose strings, Hanging down, knots. It's like, ah, oh, what is this? But if you could turn it over, you would have the understanding of what those loose strings and knots are for. And all those loose strings and knots are actually creating a pattern on the backside. That's beautiful. And it makes sense. I would just present to you that this life is the underside of a weaving filled with the knots and strings and can look very ugly. And we ask, God, did you really make this? But I believe that there will be day and time when you'll see the other side. How do I know? Well, the Bible talks about the end times in heaven when this world as we know it is no more and that we are there with God in eternity Removed from the presence of sin. And the refrain that continues to sing out is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All power belongs to him. 
and it is filled with nothing but praises for God. I believe that it could very well possibly be that when we go through life, we look and we see what we thought were the knots and the loose strings that were actually God's working. And the end result is a glorifying of God like we've not known before. He is the conductor of history. And he brings it to the final conclusion. And it is a note of praise to him. And so Joseph believes that. God has revealed already, even before he died, how things were working. And he says, look, God's using this for his glory. And he's protecting us through this. So 21, do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Not only did he say, I will forgive you. He said, your children would be my children. Your grandchildren would be my grandchildren. If there's ever a need in your life, I'm your man. You have no need for life insurance. You have no need for medical insurance. You've got Joseph insurance. And that's what he extends to his family. This is an echo of Romans chapter 12. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 12 verse 16 Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the problem with vengeance. It preoccupies our mind. It fills our mind. We have a hard time escaping what we want to do and see done to someone else. And we scheme and we plan. And before long, our mind is filled. When our mind is filled with the vengeance, it cannot be filled with the things of heaven. How do you love someone when all, when all the time you're thinking about what bad could happen to them? He says, do not be overcome with evil. When you give yourself and allow yourself this place for vengeance, it will just naturally fill your mind and it will make you bitter. God has better things in store for you than to be bitter. It is to concentrate on him and believe that there is a God that holds things in account and you set your affections on things above, not on things below. Now, I read the passage like Romans 12 and we think about the worst person in our life. I mean, that person really irritates us. Just, you know, you had someone come to your mind when I read that. Now, we understand that, but I would just would also say to you, you don't have to wait for someone to really just drag your name in the mud. Sometimes this passage can apply to your husband, to your wife, to your children. Sometimes when we see enemies, we don't think about them. But we need to also consider those whom we love. If we are to treat our enemies this way, how much more should we treat those whom we love? And let me just say, this also applies to how we treat one another in a church. There is to be a love, a prayer for one another. It is evident in Joseph's life because he was heavily minded. 
I mentioned that at church, one of the things that sets us apart is that we recognize we're sinners and we need the forgiveness of God. Jesus also said another thing that should set us apart is that there should be a love for one another. How does it happen? It is happens when there's a group of people that encourages one another, provokes one another to think about heaven and make that their focus. It will flesh out in how they treat one another. And so Joseph goes on. And it's time for him to die. <laughs> 54 years pass. Nothing much mentioned. He lives a long life. What I've noted is, guys, when you bury me, let me be with my father. Let me be with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, because that's the place God said that we would be. And so you imagine Moses writing this. They're going to the promised land, and there's a box. It's being carried around on an oxen. And a child says, Daddy, what's that box? Well, that's the bones of Joseph. Why are we carrying bones? Doesn't seem very useful, Daddy. It doesn't matter. It's not about whether it's useful. It's about having a heavenly mind. You see, that man died with the riches of Egypt, but his heart was not set on the riches of Egypt. He knew that we were going to a place that God himself promised. And he promised us. And now it's happening, son. We're carrying his bones there. You know, uh, sometimes we think being heavily minded is a lot easier when we get old. I remember talking to my granddad about this, and he said, Son, you know, don't, don't be fooled. Growing old, there's nothing fun about it. It's hard. It hurts. If someone had warned me, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. And so, it's constantly thinking about the things he used to be able to do and no longer would be able to do. And then, grandmother passed away. And it's hard to keep him having motivation for life here. Now, a thought often occurred to me, when he goes, it's just the remains. His heart's already gone long ago. But I don't think that our hearts are to go because our wives die. I don't think our hearts should be destined for heaven because our parents and grandparents have already died. I don't think that our hearts even should, should be there just because our children die. It seems to be that as I read the word of God, that our heart seems to be set upon it because there's someone even more important. That there was someone who came and saw our situation, our selfishness, and loved us to the degree that, that he died on the cross for us, resurrected again, and said, I am to be your treasure, and where I am, there you will be also. And it is at that moment when we see that, and we say, I need that, I need someone to forgive me, the Spirit of Christ enters into our life. And so when Jesus says, there you will be also with me, our heart rejoices. Why do we set our minds on things above? Because our greatest treasure is there. So let me ask you, if anyone was to observe your life, your private thoughts, your your daily activities, where would they say your treasure lies? If you say that you are a man of God, but you do not know the word of God, you do not intentionally read the word of God, I don't know how you reason within yourself to say that. If your mind's not thinking about God. If you're not praying to God and casting your cares upon him, I'm not sure how you can say that your heart's set on things above. What are you doing to set your mind on God? Right here's a good step. 
But it should not be the only step. This is one day of the week. I just invite you to set your treasure on things above. Because that's where your heart will be. The Bible starts in the garden and paradise ends in the grave. It starts with the living God, ends with the dead man. But fortunately, there's more than one book in the Bible. Genesis is the first one. Let me just, in closing, read to you the last one. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And let's pray.